Welcome everybody to Bible study tonight. So glad you've decided to join us. We're continuing our series entitled Living from the New Heart. I can't believe how fast time goes and that we are on part seven tonight. It literally feels like we just started this series and here we are seven weeks in. If you've missed or you don't remember, let's just do a quick series recap. Uh, we learned in this series that we have been invited by God to live from the new heart. Uh, this is not my invitation to you. Uh, this is God's invitation to you to live from the new heart that is available in Christ. We can live from this heart because God lives in this heart. We can live from it because he lives in it. We can trust it. We can trust our new heart. He has made it a perfect and permanent dwelling. He's not going anywhere. He's a permanent resident. Uh, and when he moves in, he doesn't share the space with anyone. He doesn't have roommates. He's not in there with your old nature. And he's not in there with your enemy. He's in your new heart by himself, seated on the throne there. And uh, he's staying there until he gets you home. We are perfectly obedient to the standard of righteousness from this new heart. Romans 6, 7, that you are perfectly obedient to the standard of teaching to which you have um, committed from this heart. Not so much from our head all the time. We get our thinking mixed up and not always from our hands either. We, we sin and fall short. But from our heart, we are perfectly obedient to God because God lives in that heart. And from that heart, God is patiently working to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. The key word there is patiently. He's working patiently. We're not as patient as God, but he is patiently working, us to, or, or, patiently working to conform us to the image of his son. And as I always say, when we finally get home, we'll see the family resemblance. You might not see it now. But when you get home, you'll look just like him. You know, people used to say that my brother looked like my dad. And all my life, I could never see it. Couldn't see it. I was like, no, Mark doesn't look like dad. And then all of a sudden, as he got older, and he started losing his hair, and his hair started getting gray, I was like, man, he looks an awful lot like dad. <laughs> uh, well, you know, when we get home, it'll be like that. You know, we might not feel like we look like Jesus. We might see our sin and our shortcoming more than we can see our Savior. But I want you to know when you get home, you'll look just like him. Your new self, body, soul, and spirit is a perfect fit for God. If you were to die tonight or Jesus were to return, you're heaven ready. Your body's ready, your soul is ready, and your spirit's ready. And then last week we talked about the perfect atmosphere how living at the center of God's grace, his forgiveness, and his goodness creates the perfect atmosphere for growth and fruit-bearing. All right, so tonight we're talking about the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. There's more to the Christian life than knowing you are free from the law and that you have God's full acceptance. We talked extensively about that last week, that we are free from the obligation of the law. 
that we are under God's grace, not under his law, that we're forgiven uh, of our sins against God and we are recipients of his goodness because we're forgiven. Uh, There's more to the Christian life than just knowing you're free from the law. There's more to knowing that you have his full acceptance. However, that statement is not a call to self-improvement or behavior modification. I'm not putting you under another yoke of bondage tonight by telling you that there's more than what we talked about last time. That there's more than just being free and forgiven and accepted. I'm not telling you that you have to leave here and start working. That you have to try harder. That you have to run faster. That you have to do more. That's not what I'm saying at all. When um, those statements are made from a pulpit, Satan is close by to to deceive you into thinking that you got to do more. That's not what I'm doing tonight. That's not what I'm saying. Just because there's more, it doesn't mean that you have to improve yourself more or modify your behavior. Um, That's already happened. You've already been improved to the point of perfection. There's no more improving to do. In fact, your self-improvement efforts are the reason why Jesus came, so that you could stop doing them because they were ineffective. And because he lives in your new heart, you're not just changing your old behaviors. You're not just turning over a new leaf and trying to be better. You're actually better. You actually want new things. You actually do new things. Things you couldn't do before when you were dead to righteousness. And so there's more, but it's not more self-improvement and more behavior modification. Rather, the more is a call to worship and obey God because he has provided the perfect sacrifice for your sin. The more is more of his presence. Uh, The more is more worship, more gratitude, more honor for what God has done. And because of what he has done, uh, because of who he is, he is worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our obedience. Um, And so that's what the more is all about. So I want to ask a question tonight. Does sin still matter? If we've been perfected and we're free and we're forgiven and accepted, and if all we have to do now is just worship and thank God and be grateful and brag on Jesus, and if all we have to do now is just simply obey the simple command to to love God and to love others, then... um, does sin still matter? Can we just go out and do what we want? Can we, just, can we just, just let it happen, whatever happens? Well, the answer is no. Of course not. Of course we can't do that. Of course sin still matters. Just because we're fully forgiven, just because all our sins, capital A-L-L, all our sins, past, present, and future, even the ones we haven't committed yet, just because they're all forgiven the moment we accept Christ as our Savior doesn't mean that sin no longer matters. 
Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. We have this choice every day when we wake up to let Christ reign or to let sin reign. We have the opportunity every day to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness or we have the opportunity to present our bodies as instruments of sin. Um, we present ourselves obedient to righteousness or obedient to sin. And the call in the New Testament is to present yourself to God as instruments of righteousness. And so, of course, sin matters. God doesn't want to just forgive you. He wants to sanctify you. That's why I was talking earlier about him patiently working to conform you to the image of his son. Well, his son was perfect. His son was sinless. Uh, his son was righteous and holy, and he wants to make you that way too. Why? Because it gives him glory. He's not doing it to make you miserable. He's not doing it to frustrate you. He's doing it because he's worthy of it. It gives him glory, and he's worthy of all glory. And uh, he's going to patiently work with you until he gets what he wants. And what he wants is for you to sin less so that you'll better reflect the glory of his son to the world around you that you'll be a better mirror to reflect the light that has been shed abroad in your heart so that more might come to a saving knowledge of jesus so sin still matters the sin problem is solved for the believer the sin sickness is cured but sin still matters. We still have to pay attention to it, and we still have to avoid it. We don't want to get obsessed with it. We want to be obsessed with our Savior, not our shortcomings. But we need to pay attention to it, and we need to guard against it, and we need to obey the grace of God that teaches us to say no. Here's the fact. You died to sin. That's the fact. It's unequivocal. You died to sin because you shared in the death of Christ. Christ really died, and so did you. Now you are a slave to righteousness. You were a slave to sin, but you've been raised with Christ. Christ really died, and Christ really rose. And you really rose with him. You rose to newness of life. And in this new life, you are a slave to righteousness. You're not a slave against your will. You're a bondservant. You're willfully submitted and surrendered to the mastery or to the lordship of Christ your Savior. And as a result, you become a slave to righteousness. As a believer, you hate sin and love Jesus. And that's just the way it goes. If you love sin and you're not so sure about Jesus, then I'm not so sure you're saved. You may have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but you may not be saved yet. The evidence of salvation is simple. Do you love Jesus? If you say yes, that's half the answer. The other question that you need to answer is, do you hate sin? If the answer is yes, then I believe that you've been saved. You've been born again because an unbeliever, an unregenerate person, can't say they hate sin. They might be able to say they hate the consequences of sin, 
or that they wish those consequences didn't exist. But only the regenerate, only the born-again believer can say they truly hate sin. Your supernatural ability to obey God and bear fruit to God is the most important thing about your new life in Christ. Remember I said the most important thing about your new life in Christ is not you improving yourself or not you modifying your behavior. The most important thing is worship and obedience. You worship God for what he's done and for who he is. And you obey him because of that. And when you do, you bear fruit to God because he's worthy of it. That's the important thing. And all this is possible because of Christ's perfect sacrifice. You'd be incapable of doing any of these things without Christ's perfect sacrifice. Are you sitting down? I remember the nurse said something to that effect when she was going to inform Trina and I that we were having twins. Are you sitting down or should you sit down or do you faint easy? My question to you tonight is, are you sitting down? Are you ready for this? Maybe you should take a seat because this is life-changing news I'm about to tell you. I want to ask you, what position are you in concerning your sin? Are you standing? Are you working? Are you trying to get more forgiveness and cleansing? Or are you sitting down with Jesus, resting in the fact that you've been made perfect forever and that your sin record is canceled. Let's read these scripture references here and then think about your answer. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There's no distinction between God's glory and Jesus' glory. No distinction between God's nature and Christ's nature. They are one in the same. You know, a lot of people have this misconception that there's one God in the Old Testament and then there's Jesus in the New Testament and that they're somehow different. That's a heresy. They are the same. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and that God is Jesus. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. And of course, let's not forget the Holy Spirit, who is also God. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Look at this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is one powerful being who can uphold the universe. And look what he did. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This incredible Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, humbled himself 
emptied himself of his divine rights to make purification for our sin. Not his own sin. Our sin. And when he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's why I say we worship Jesus for who he is and what he's done. He is worthy of all obedience because of who he is, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the world with his power. That God came down to this planet, took on our humble form to die in our place. If, if that person is not worthy of my allegiance and my obedience, then no one is. Okay, so let's look at then uh, chapter 10, verse 12 to 14. And I'll go back and ask you that question. So remember, he made atonement for sins and then he sat down. Hebrews 10, 12, the Hebrew writer picks up on that same theme. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And while he's seated there, he is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So this passage is referring to you and to me tonight because we are those who are being sanctified, being saved, being born again, being radically changed. Jesus offered one sacrifice and sat down. And so my question to you then is, are you sitting down too? What position are you in concerning your sins? Because you shared in his death, you shared in his resurrection, and you share in his life. And right now, Christ is living, seated at the right hand of the Father. The work is done as it pertains to sin. Sin is fixed. The sin problem is fixed. And so you don't have to work at it anymore. You don't have to, to strive. You don't have to, to try. You don't have to keep turning over a new leaf and saying, I'm going to get it right this time. It's already right. Jesus already did it. He already did it with his one sacrifice and then he sat down. I've said it before. I'll say it again quickly, just in case you've never heard it or you need reminding. Of all the furniture in the temple, there was one piece of furniture that God did not appoint, and that was a chair. The high priests were to constantly stand and do their work. They could not sit when they were ministering on behalf of the people. Jesus, our great high priest, he did the work offered the sacrifice himself, and the next thing he did was sit down, which means there's no more work to be done. The work is finished. It is accomplished. So when we say the, the finished work of the cross, that's what we mean. It's so finished that Jesus actually sat down, and while he's seated there, his feet are reclining because his enemies are being made a footstool for him. Jesus is at peace. He is at rest when it comes to this sin issue. It is fixed. And you can know that as a believer. 
The sin issue is resolved. Will you still sin while you're on this side of eternity? Yes, you will, because you're still in this body. You still have this old way of thinking that rears its ugly head sometimes. The power of sin is still in the world, and Satan still, still tempts us. But we have been given the victory, and we are cleansed and forgiven. We're seated there with Christ, for we're seated with him in heavenly places. A lot of times we like to ask the question, what about the sins we haven't committed yet? Well, Colossians 2.14 tells us that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. If Jesus was only ever nailed to the cross one time, then that means that all the sin... I mean, I'm talking all the sin from the Garden of Eden until the rapture and through tribulation until the return of Christ. All the sin was nailed to the cross that one time. Which means all your sin was nailed to the cross that one time. So when you got forgiven of all your sin, you got forgiven one time time the debt was canceled the record was erased it wasn't erased and then God picked up the pen and said okay oh they did that oh did that he didn't start writing again that record was canceled the Bible says that he will never remember our sins against us again they are in a sea of forgetfulness. We remember our sins. We hold sins against other people, but God does not. For those who come to him and confess and believe and receive that forgiveness, there is no more record of sin. No more. It is gone. It's over with. It's done. And so just to answer that question, because a lot of us have asked it over the years, what about the sins we haven't committed yet? It's not in your notes, but I'll say this first. If your biggest failure isn't in front of you, and I hope it's not. I hope your biggest failure is behind you. But if you can't think that my biggest failure in life might be in front of me, then you don't have a full grasp of the immense grace of God. Because God's already forgiven that failure too. I sat last night at Hope House with seven men who are recovering from addiction. They're detoxing. They're getting ready to go into a recovery program. And um, it was a really humbling experience. It was, it was amazing actually. And um, They've had some pretty big failures in the past. They made some huge mistakes. Things they wish they could take back. Places they wish they never went. People they never met. Things they never tried. It's easy for us to say to them, you know what, God can forgive that. It's in your past. You know what, we all have a past. The hard thing for us to say is, 
my biggest failure might be five years down the road, ten years down the road. I might not even see it coming yet. And do I believe that God has forgiven that as well? And if I don't believe that, if I believe that I could do something in my future that God would have to forgive again or that he couldn't forgive, then I have a very small view of grace. Now, like I said, I hope your biggest failures are behind you. I want to go onward and upward with the Lord. Um, I'm not saying that so that you have an excuse to go out and commit big mistakes and say, hey, grace got me. That's not the point I'm trying to make. If, if, if you think that, then again, I'm not sure you've even heard the gospel yet. I'm not sure you've met this Jesus who's the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of his character who upholds the universe by his power. Because when you meet that person, you never want to offend that person. You, you will, but you don't want to. So what about the sins we haven't committed yet? Many times we believe the lie that all our sins are forgiven unless we sin. Maybe you were like me. You grew up and when you said your prayers before bed, you tried to remember all the, the times you swore and put up your middle finger to the bus beside you and you know, all the times you punched your brother and lied to your mom and, and you tried to list them all off and say, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me because if I died tonight, you know, I wouldn't want to go to hell. I mean, that's a very superstitious uh, religion that you're practicing there. You're not, when you're doing that, you're not practicing Christianity. You're practicing some superstitious pagan conglomerate of all kinds of stuff. But it's not Christianity. We are forgiven of all our sins past, present, and future. The finished work's actually finished. There's no more suffering going to be done by Jesus. There's no more bloodshed going to be done by Jesus. There's no more dying going to be done. It is complete. Hebrews 9, 25 and 26 says this, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Jesus didn't come into the world to offer himself over and over. Just as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Remember, the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. And so the Hebrew writer picks up on that and he says that if Jesus um, was going to suffer repeatedly or if he was going to be the, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth and he was going to have to suffer every time we sinned, then he would have to suffer repeatedly over and over from day one, which means Jesus would still be showing up in our lifetime, suffering, bleeding and dying and rising again for our sin. But the Bible tells us that he did it once for all time at the end of the age. What age? The end of the old covenant era. So that he might do away with sin once and for all by sacrificing himself. The work is actually done. It's over. All your sins forgiven. Washed in the blood. So what about this, uh, this phrase, 
uh, we often hear about keeping short accounts with God. Uh, honestly, one of the last conversations I had with my dad was about this, this idea. He used to preach this all the time. And he said, Matthew, if I had it back, I would never have preached one sermon about keeping short accounts with God. But he said, I didn't understand forgiveness. I didn't understand just how powerful the blood of Jesus was to forgive sin. I thought you had to keep short accounts. I thought you had to keep confessing and keep getting incremental forgiveness. You see, this idea sounds good in principle. Keep short accounts. Keep small accounts with God. Don't let your sin debt rack up. You can't let your sin debt rack up because there's no one keeping record of it. Okay? The record's gone. The old account is settled long ago. The idea sounds good in principle, but it denies the completed work of Christ, if you really think about it. This catchy phrase advances the idea that our forgiveness is progressive. That when we got saved, God forgave our past. And that's it. God is not remembering. He's not accounting for our sins. If you've accepted the blood of Jesus, or sorry, accepted the blood sacrifice that forgiveness requires, you don't have to keep apologizing. Your apology, no matter how sincere, will never result in your forgiveness. Only the shedding of blood can remit sin, and Jesus already shed his blood once. Okay, the nature of human forgiveness is that I realize I have offended you and I humble myself and I initiate an apology or I instigate an apology. I come to you and I say, listen, I'm sorry. I realize I messed up. I realize I made a mistake. I'm sorry. And because I make this apology, then you see my sincerity and you say, okay, I, I forgive you. I forgive the offense that you committed against me. And we can, on a human level, consider ourselves forgiven. It just doesn't work that way with the God of the universe. Because, see, we're, we're sinful creatures offending one another. But when it, so we're kind of on the same level. We're, what's that word? Anyway, you get it. But when we sin, against a holy God, it is something completely other. We can't just apologize and say, sorry, God. We have greatly grieved him when we sin. Humankind has greatly grieved their creator because of sin. And so an apology is just not going to cut it. Maybe you've said that to someone over the years who's hurt you and, and apologized to you. You said, hey, man, an apology is just not going to cut it. You've got you to gotta prove it. You've got to show it. That's why Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. Without bleeding and dying, we can't understand the magnitude of the offense that sin is against a holy God. Like, death is the final thing, right? It's the biggest thing in this human experience. 
That's why when we really truly love someone, we say things like, I would die for you. Like it's the biggest thing. And uh, sin is a big thing. And so in order for it to be forgiven, remitted, washed, removed, someone has to die. Someone has to shed their blood. And it has to be innocent blood, sinless blood. That's why only Jesus could die for us. That's why only Jesus could offer the perfect sacrifice for sin. A lot of people think they'll stand before God and say sorry. It won't cut it. You have to accept Jesus in this life. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. One day it'll be too late. You have to, to fall at the foot of the cross. You have to run to Jesus and hide in his wounds. And his dad used to say, if your sins aren't on Jesus, they're still on you. Jesus made a way to get your sins off you. He offered the perfect sacrifice so that you might be forgiven. Take a few moments to talk about repentance. Repentance is a believer's word. It's a, it's a word for everybody, but it's a believer's word especially. When believers sin, they have a sacred obligation to repent, to change their minds. That's literally what the word repent means. The Greek word is metanoia, to change your mind. And only believers can truly change their mind about sin because only believers have the power to do so. Romans 12 and 2, do not be conformed to the image of this world. Who's Paul talking to? Believers. Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Sinners can't do that. Sinners can't discern the will of God. Sinners can't know what is good and acceptable and perfect. Sinners are tutored by the law and gospel to uh, be made aware of their sin and their need for a savior. That's what sinners are capable of. They are capable of being confronted with their sin and their need for a savior. But all this other stuff, but mind changing and renewing and discerning and knowing, those are things for believers to do. Colossians 3.10 says, And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, that word knowledge is noia in Greek, so if repentance is metanoia, changing your knowledge, adjusting your knowledge, then only believers can truly do that because we have the word of God that gives us the ability to align our thinking with God and his standard and his ideal. This idea that repentance is turning from your sin is misleading. Repentance is not so much turning from your sin as it is turning your mind to God. For hundreds of years, the church has preached one-time repentance for sinners and ongoing confession for believers. When really, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches one-time confession. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a one-time confession. And then the Bible teaches ongoing repentance, this daily transforming, renewing of the mind. We talked about how God is patiently working with us to conform us to the image of his, of his Son. He's doing that by conforming and transforming our minds, our will, our emotions, our attitudes and actions. That happens when we repent, when we change our minds. And so believer, or sorry, repentance is definitely a believer's word. Consider this. Consider this. We shouldn't be calling sinners to repentance before we call them to believe and follow. Okay? And we shouldn't be calling believers to seek more forgiveness for sins because they're already forgiven. Let's look at what Jesus said, because Jesus used those exact words, I came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5, 27 to 32. Let's, let's put that, that text into context. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, repent. No. He said, follow. Follow me. That's the first thing he said. And look at this. Leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Must have been a pretty compelling invitation for Levi to leave everything and follow Jesus. But that's what Jesus asks of all of us, isn't it? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Follow him where? Follow him to Calvary, to the place of death. I'm getting ahead of myself. Follow me, and leaving everything he followed, verse 29, and Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors, other sinners, other reprobates, other outcasts. They were reclining at the table with them. Verse 30, look who shows up, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and their scribes, and they did what they always do, they grumbled. They grumbled at Jesus' disciples and they said, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well need no physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now remember, Jesus is saying this before the cross. Okay? So before the cross, everyone identified as a sinner. That was who they were by nature. Even if they were in covenant Israel, and even if they followed the Mosaic law, and even if they offered sacrifices, and all of that, they were still sinners because they still had wicked hearts. And so it's right for Jesus to call the people that are following him sinners because they're not regenerate yet. They're not born again. Now, he's talked about it. He talked to Nicodemus. 
And he said, you must be born again. So there's this idea floating around that there's a, a regeneration coming, but it hasn't happened yet because the means of that has not taken place. So when Jesus says, I've come to call sinners to repentance, he certainly has and certainly did come to call sinners to repentance. But now on this side of the cross, okay, the first thing we need to do is call sinners to follow. And they can only follow Jesus if they confess him, right? They have to deny themselves. And they have to humble themselves and confess that Jesus is the Savior, that they're sinners and he's the Savior and I'm going to go to the place that he went because I want to share in his death so that my old self can die and my old nature can die and I can get a new self and a new nature, a new heart so that I can change my identity from sinner to saint. That's right. So repentance is a saint's word. Because only saints can truly change their mind. If we think about repentance as turning from sin, then of course we're going to ask sinners to repent. But that's not a full understanding of the word, right? The word really means changing your mind. Not turning from sin so much as turning your mind to God. All right, finally, the work is reliable. I want to take a few moments for questions. This perfect sacrifice is reliable. You can stake your life on it. I know I have. Believer, you are forgiven completely, 100%. There's no one in this room tonight that's 68% forgiven. You're either 0% or 100%. There is no in-between. If Christ has forgiven you, you're completely forgiven. From now on, when you sin... Don't seek another measure of forgiveness. Your forgiveness is not progressive. It's not ongoing. So when you sin, don't seek more forgiveness. Don't go to bed tonight and list off all your sins, hoping to get more forgiveness. You can go to bed and list off your sins because you want to change your mind about them. Don't feel guilty over them. Guilt is not from God. You may feel convicted. It's the reason why you're naming them off. It's the reason why you're saying, God again today, but it's not who I am. It's not what I'm designed to do. Go to bed thinking about those things. Dwell, not, don't obsess on them, but think about them. You have to deal with the sin issue. But don't go looking for more forgiveness. That's already done. Instead, rely on the truth that you are forgiven by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Remember that your new self is dead to sin and that sin will never truly fulfill you anymore and it never did in the first place. Submit to God's grace which teaches you how to think rightly about sin. Don't say, okay, I just need grace to get in the door and now you know what, I'm going to make it on my own. You needed grace to get in. You need grace to stay in. You need grace to get you home. You don't need less grace. You need more grace. And when you battle temptation, and you will, rely on the truth that Jesus has already defeated the power of sin and rejoice in the fact that one day the power of sin, death, and hell will be completely and utterly destroyed. <laughs>